yeah. And then whatever, you know, whatever your brand attributes are, that should be breathed and lived everywhere, not just online, but offline. Like Chipotle is a good example. A friend, someone was tweeting something about Chipotle CEO says they don't know when inflation is going to end. And I'm like, oh no, I love Chipotle. Stop raising the price of my burritos. (laughs) No, but like the experience that you get when you go into a Chipotle and you have them make your burrito and like that frontline workers experience, like that, that's, it's always a fun experience. They're always like so positive. They're fun. Like I like all the people that work in like every Chipotle. They're just. Hey, Adam, welcome to the podcast. Excited to have you on. Thanks, Daniel. It's good to be here. I like to always start the podcast with just a backstory of how you got into marketing and how you, where are you today in marketing? Yeah. So I'm an old and, you know, your podcast is called the marketing millennials. I'm technically a millennial, but I'm an OG millennial. So I'm, you know, born early eighties. So when I first got into marketing actually happened because in college, you know, I was working at a restaurant, but I also, I was always a computer gamer and played quake and all these uh, real-time strategy games. And I built a quake form and my Quake form started to get more, like more and more visitors. So I put um, AdSense on it, which you know, if you're a younger marketer, you might not know, but it used to be pretty profitable to run AdSense-powered sites. And my my form and actually some of my other just content-based sites were making more than I was making at the restaurant, uh, working a service industry job. And I got out of college. I was actually working for the city of Fort Lauderdale for for their uh, arts department, and I, I brought uh, King Tut, who's uh, on like one of his last stops before he went back to his, you know, back back to Egypt to his tomb. Yeah, I got to like be part of the team that did all the marketing for King Tut, and it was a lot of fun. The woman that I worked for, for at the city of Fort Lauderdale is like. Adam, you're really good at the marketing thing. You know, I came up with all these creative taglines and stuff to put up banners around the city and radio ads and all this stuff. And so I ended up going to a marketing agency, marketing and PR agency in Fort Lauderdale. And on the first day there, I saw two interns manually sending uh, 900 faxes to, to, to all of the different TV stations for a national client. And I'm like, wait, wait, they're manually faxing things. Hang on. So like my first day on the job, I found an IP based solution to be able to send out, you know, all of the faxes at once to a CSV doc of, you know, all of the TV station. Again, we're old. These, the fax media alerts to TV stations. And pretty soon it dawned on me, there was this huge divide and how companies were actually marketing and communicating and how, you know, the technology available to do those things. And so quickly went from, you know, account executive at a, a really cool boutique firm working on, like they had like Berkshire Hathaway as a client and Darden, which is all Garden Red Lobster, all these really cool consumer brands. After like three years there, I was director, which typically doesn't happen and kind of went from there. So that's the short, short version. Um, and I think similar to what I did, there's definitely always opportunity for young people entering any sector that might just have a different experience of of what's happening and definitely not just marketing, uh, retail, um, you know, IT, like just your views of the world are really unique. And and that was something that I still carry with me, right? Like being sort of metacognitive of what's happening around us and how maybe things could be done better. And a lot of times the really cool things happen when, like I actually 
didn't have a formal marketing background. And, and, and that's sort of, that, that's a good thing, right? Like, especially in the sciences too, you get people who join a certain, you know, they're curious about a certain thing and they view it from this whole other perspective. That's, that's a lot of times when you get real innovation because the marketing innovation we have is not the same as, you know, the science innovation that actually changes the world. We're just trying to sell things. So. Yeah. yeah, that's that's so funny. It's like there's two types of innovation, like innovation that's like, oh, wow, that's creative. And then it's like, oh, the innovation that's actually like saving people's lives and stuff like that. And that's why it's funny because it's like some of like the marketing jobs, it's like we're not saving lives here. Guys. We're just trying to like make money for a business. Sometimes the business is a good cause and sometimes it doesn't. It's a good thing, right? Like my parents were MDs. So in theory, I should have also been an MD, but at the same time, that's a really stressful job. And the stress from that was definitely a factor. And, you know, my father dying when I was like 13. And so like, I witnessed all of that and I'm like, I don't want anything to do with that. So if you're a marketer, you have a good life, right? Like it may seem stressful and I recently quit my job and I'm taking some time off uh, because I was stressed. But at the same time, like your worst day at any sort of knowledge economy job isn't the same as you know, if you lose a patient, right. It's like, like I have so much, I have so much empathy and respect for our medical practitioners right now for, you know, it doesn't matter if you're right, left pro antivirus, doesn't matter. You, like everyone is just like, you, you have to stand and be sort of like applaud the, the hard work that they've done through a pandemic. And I, I think like, it's, that's like a really hard job. That's like, you know, I, I think we undervalue it. I think that whole sector should be paid more. I, I agree. I like it's just so hard because like there's so much value in just like that one patient you're saving or something like that, where like it's hard to scale that value because it's you have to scale people, but they definitely should be like paid more because they they're putting themselves at risk right now too. Um, yeah, like the frontline workers and the you know the nurses and all the physicians assistants and whatnot. Obviously, the actual MDs are paid pretty well. I would love to go into, I know you, you're talking about like seeing things differently, but like, I know one of the topics you're passionate about is like, like how, like right now, like there's like lack of leadership in marketing today and like how there's a bunch of like CMOs and big company leaders and some startup leaders that are just bad at leading people. Could you dig into that a little bit? Yes. So I I think we have a leadership crisis on a few different dimensions. One, I think, is we have had a generation of marketer really hold strong to a lot of things that they were able to do because the world was different. Okay. So an example of that is we have a generation of marketers who came up in the three TV channel world. And so their whole life their whole reason for being at a large company was nailing that 30 second TV ad, right? They would spend tons of time, you know, like the, it's dramatized in, um, what's that show? Um, Mad Men, where, you know, they, they do the whole pitch and, you know, the Madison Avenue spending obscene amounts on a New York agency that you shouldn't spend on a great agency or there might not be great ones in New York, but on creating that 30 second ad and, going to Keynes and winning that award for, for that one campaign. Right. And so it's so pedigreed and it's so studio 54 esque, right. As opposed to 
real leadership in the marketing world wouldn't care if they won an award. They would care about, oh, I, you know, decreased CAC by 50%. I built this awesome MarTech stack and was able to create the first 10 or 100,000 customers for a startup. I was able to, you know, solve this difficult measurement challenge. And, and, and now we're able to really be thoughtful of where we place our bets, right? I feel like a lot of the previous gen marketers are still holding on to, oh, I won an award and, you know, I was credentialed by my peers. And we see this not just in marketing, but in media as well. I think when you look at things like the the Rotten Tomato score, where it's like the critic score and the audience score are like so far apart, right? And like, what does that say? It's like, we've created this like weird dichotomy where these industries are sort of you know, they're so insular and they don't get out enough. And I think that that's like a problem in, in a lot of areas. And so, for, but for marketers, like I, I want leadership where it's not about awards. It's not about politics. It's not about, you know, any of these sort of feel good type things and subjective type things. And it's more about, you know, how you can be data driven, how you can serve the customer more, how you can, um, you know, create these experiences that people love and share. And it's not just, you know, you getting a backpack from, um, you know, ad week or ad age or, you know, some industry conference you paid however much to, you know, have a table at for your team. Those things can be great. And you know what? I'm not saying don't submit your campaign for an award, but it seems like we're we're still holding on to that. And, and I see that that's just one example, but it, it appears that that is emblematic across the leadership at these very large agencies, these very large companies. And I, I think at the same time, like Daniel, like there's such great marketing talent out there, like, you know, uh, Amanda, who you've had on your podcast previously, she's so passionate. She's so interested in doing what's right for marketers. Her startup, SparkToro, is actually like, you know, they're helping you pull lists of influencers that are actually useful. It's not just about, you know, the old 30 second TV spot. And they're helping, they're, they're helping be part of a, sort of the new process of how a lot of marketing is run. And so I think that that world is exciting. And I think this, the thing I would like to see is more investment in our young people from a from a nurturing standpoint, from a uh, skills development standpoint, but in, in a way that actually prepares them for the future. And here's why that's important. I think we're going to see a big culling in a lot of the old ways that marketing was done. I think everything is going to become much more data-driven. CMO is going to, if they're not already, going to report into CFO and CEO. And if they're not able to show clear ROI, because there's enough people now that can do this, they're not going to last. And that's sort of the reason like CMO tenure is frequently like, I think the average is like under two years, which is crazy. That like almost never happens for like CTO or CEO. I mean, if it does for those things, that, that's like, there's probably other things wrong with the company, but it's like so common that there's this leadership churn in marketing. And I fear if we don't break that cycle now, we're just going to have a new generation where there's another, you've seen all these stories where Wall Street Journal like shows the graph of like CMO tenure and the CMOs that stay are the ones who are able to show how their campaigns are working. And I think that marketing has to have a seat at the strategy table. And to do that, it has to show its worth. And we have the tools to do that. And the worth 
is proven in charts and graphs and not in winning awards and having things people you know feel good about, right? The world is moving from tell me to show me. Um, and that is not just marketing, that's a lot of other things. And so I think one way that I, I, we tried to help is I was previously at Google on the analytics team. We built a MOOC, a massive open online course for analytics, and it's free to take. And the cool thing is, is all of that knowledge, like if you took those courses, you are basically, you're, you're probably more data savvy than like most average marketing managers and companies need those roles. And so like over 2 million people have taken those courses. We have a group called Google Analytics Certified Partners, or we had, I don't work there anymore, about 400 agencies that all, like they'll hire people who have taken those courses and they need young analysts. And so there's so much opportunity for a, a individual to, to learn on social, take online courses, Hootsuite and HubSpot have great courses online and education as well. Like there's so much self-directed knowledge. I just, I want to see more like leadership. Like I want to see the CMOs of Pinterest, of, you know, of Facebook to actually like be out there in the world championing, like, like take, take a flag and run with it. Like I, I never hear from those people. I hear from, you know, Amanda, I hear from you. I hear from, you know, Rand Fishkin and like a few of the other people who are really, you know, we know the group that's like really tight and, and, and sort of plugged into the industry. But I, I, I think we need like the people with the, you know, 10,000, 100,000 foot views to also step in. One more comment on that. So one of the most valuable roles in a company right now is the most undervalued. I mean, most undercomped. So I think social media manager role is probably the most, like one of, if not the most valuable roles from a marketing standpoint. And unless you're at like, you know, a Google or a, you know, Splunk or a, you know, Twilio type company where they really value that role because those people are making, you know, quarter million plus equity, like that role frequently makes like 50 to 70 to, you know, 90,000 at the most. And all they're doing is talking to other brands and posting lame memes, but there's so much more they could do with a really thoughtful person in that community role. So that's just one example where like the lack of leadership has created everyone following Wendy's and Wendy should be Wendy's. Everyone else should be someone else. So there is a crisis. I that's a long way of sharing a few examples, but I I would like to see more more tuned in, passionate people at the at the senior level um, opining on on social as one example, analytics is another. Yeah, I, and I don't know how we fix it. We all know that the marketing technology landscape is insane. There are thousands of tools to choose from, and it could be really daunting to pick the right one. Well, we partnered with our friends over at Maga.io to get you the book that makes it easier. Build cool shit. It's honestly the most complete guide to building a tech stack today, and we can't recommend it enough. Just text millennial to 415-915-9011. That's millennial to 415-915-9011 to get your copy today. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny you say that because I'm also thinking about like the reverse. If I look at like from how buyers are buying today, like back in like 10 years ago, it was like, like if you had Gartner Award, if you had this award, like you were a better product. But now like with your example with the Rotten Tomatoes of like 
the difference between these scores, but like it's like so true because buyers are gonna go look at like community source review sites, they're gonna go look at talk to their peers now, they're gonna go on social media, they're not going to like they don't care about award that was given by all these like media companies because they value them less. They value the people's opinions and their friends' opinions way more than they did 10 years ago because there was less competition back then. And and I think there's a broader theme here. Like there's, you could say that the broad theme is just distrust in institutions. Mm -hmm. You could say that for politics. You can say that for finances and banking. And I can, I, I think we could say it for marketing too. I think there's a lot of people who are very comfortable for a very long period of time. And I, this might be a function of like late stage cycle things for, you know, you could arguably say we're at like the end of this economic cycle, however long the Fed wants to, wants to let it burn for. But I, I think there's probably some like cyclicality to this because it will swing back the other way. But at the same time, you get these very complacent people in high roles at, you know, I think a good example of of actually the tide turning would be like like GE, which was you know a solid American brand for however many uh, decades, and now they've been like a complete dog from a performance standpoint. And so, like you see that like the small scale, but I think we'll see like a big churn at some point because otherwise it's like like you need institutions, like you want to be able to to trust things, right? That's like a good world. It, and and I don't know what that future ends up looking like if like you know, however we can do better incorporating like a diverse, larger, larger data set to get at that trust, right? Like maybe that's the way that it, that it's done in the future. Maybe we don't even need so many institutions or maybe the institutions are different because it's a new generation that thought through a better way of, of implementing them. And maybe there's higher trust. There also could be opportunity for like, you know, you mentioned Gartner, like there's definitely a lot of young people like that don't, that don't care about Gartner or don't even know who they are. So there's probably an entrepreneurial opportunity for like some young people to, and and there are a few to like rethink like the, the analysts, like tech recommendation firm and like rebuild it and have that be the trust of their peers. Right. I think that would be a cool thing too, to like, see like young millennial Gen Z people like put together their own Gartner and be like, these guys don't get it. We're going to, we're, we're going to do the whole trusting differently. There's not even going to be a quadrant. We're going to, you know, rethink the whole thing. Yeah. And I think one thing that you mentioned that I think too, like, is if you, like the big brands that you talked about today, yeah. like if you see like the trends of like some of the big brands out there, like they have like a strong, like founder or like brand on like, so like the person on social media is like the person like advocating, like Tesla is beating GE because Elon Musk is going crazy on social, but it's because he knows that he knows it works like he's doing it because it knows he, he knows it works like so and he knows that other car brands are not going to do what he's doing on social media so like i think a lot of brands like who invest in like their cmo or the ceo like on social like to, like you said like the pinterest person talking i think that would build more trust for that brand like the fact that we're both marketers and we can't name the pinterest C- cmo when like we spend money there that's like that sucks right there's like that's not a good signal. And you know, to, to your point on Elon, just to be clear, you don't need to shit post and post memes. Yeah. Like, like there's other ways to show up online and not necessarily do what Elon does and have it be make sense for your brand and have it be effective. So, you know, I wouldn't use Elon as a template unless you know you really have an iconoclast. And iconoclast leadership isn't a new thing either. 
like, I, I think there's ways to have right. your, have your team be out there. That's not like, like Elon is the, he's allowed to do those things because a, he's the richest guy in the world now, I guess by, by Tesla stock, but also he, I mean, he's our generation's Howard Hughes, right? He's, has all these crazy ideas, like some of them will work, some of them won't. And then, but ultimately, like, even if Tesla fails and people are already mad because I said that, because it's such a cult stock, but even if Tesla fails, like you open the door, Hey, we could build electric cars. Right. So like the, the usefulness of people like Elon for society is net positive. Even if you're someone who hates him and thinks he's a charlatan, you know, there's like a whole crew of people who don't like that. He's pushing full self-driving, uh, which is admittedly very early days. And he's having people use it right now because it's actually training their systems for self-driving to work. And so he likes the fact that they're able to ship these things early. And he, you know, his mindset is probably like, yeah, a couple of people died or whatever, but 30,000 people a year die in traffic accidents. So you know, he's looking at it from an engineering standpoint and the people mad at him are looking at it from you know, the, 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 the more like conservative you know, today standpoint of, you know, it should be done methodically and he's, you know, the move fast and break things engineer. So there, there's a probably some degree of healthy and unhealthy tension going on there. I think if Elon also stopped like posting like pedo tweets and 420 and Dogecoin stuff, like, like he, it's, but he's just crazy. I mean, he's just crazy. So your yeah, leadership or, doesn't have to be. I mean, Elon's like the Wendy's of like, companies so show that you don't like it works for elon like and it worked wendy's works for wendy like you gotta find your own brand like that's his brand like he can do it because it's his brand and he's a millionaire like obviously you gotta find like what works for your company and what it, like what works for your found like founders and what works and better tell like the story behind things and like have conversation online like i see like some cool founders on there like eight sleep founder like re- replies to like every one of people anybody who talks about a sleep i think that's like super cool like a founders on social like replying to pe- like just me talking about like a product asking online like not ma- you don't see that with many like ceos today or cmos well and, and for elon uh, here, here's the interesting thing and i'm not advocating you do this but elon's a little he's a little deceptive i mean he likes to talk about oh, you know, I came to America with nothing and I pulled myself up with bootstraps and it's like, no, your parents had money, bro. Um, like his parents are like, he comes from means and he's already impressive. And so like, he does, I, I, I don't actually think he needs to like, lo- like kind of ham up the bootstrap story. I'm like, dude, you're already really impressive. You could be sitting by the pool after you uh, sold PayPal. You don't have to create Tesla and SpaceX and Neuralink. Like, I, I think if you're going to do this and I think it's it's crazy powerful if you can get your CEO to be you know th- this this voice online. Um, but but don't lie. Like be authentically you, and then you know. First of all, you know people who are really authentic and powerful online, like a Rand Fishkin who runs SparkToro. If you don't know, I mentioned them already. I'm just using them as an example again because Rand is so great. But if you're always like your authentic self online, like you don't have to make up stories. You know who you are. It's so easy. So. Like I would just say, if you're a company leader um, and you want to embrace, you know, we we want to buy from people, we want to connect with other people. So, you know, you I know it's such a bullshit buzzword, but you do humanize your company when you know you put the people who work at the company out there and they're able to talk with the market and gather data and you know hear what customers are saying, hear what competitors are doing. Like the benefits are crazy. 
Yeah, I totally. I, I think like the one thing that you said there too is like how much feed, direct feedback you get so fast on social media that like these like executives are missing out on because they're not on there. Like it's like direct feedback from your like audience talking. Yeah, I mean their MBA courses told them you know you run a customer survey and that's how you get at this. They're 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 not looking at it from what you could potentially do with the way the world it is now. And all of education always lags the real world in any, you know, structured business education. The, those, a lot of those professors, you know, assume that mentally they're like 10, 15, 20 years ago, whatever their perspectives are. I'm also interested. I mean, you went, you said something about like social media managers and like organic. And I know you also talked about the Wendy's side of things, but like, in your opinion, like, like, how should people do social, right? Like how, like, what, what does that like even mean? Like when someone should do social, right? Like if we're like our audience, like for a brand, yeah, for a brand, uh, like for a brand. Yeah. I'm just talking about like, you, 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 there's all these people hiring, like, look at these 50 K, which they should be paid more. And they probably should, are some of those 50 K people are worth 200 K. And some of them are like they're hiring interns out of college who know social media. There's like a balance there, but like, what should brands be doing on social media to be better? Because there's you don't know. Like, I could name like probably like four brands that like I would follow on social media today. But there's such an opportunity to like create something like cool for like people to follow and like indulge. The ones we actually remember and talk about right now. Like, do, do, we don't remember the 50 brands that copy Wendy's. We remember Wendy's. So, like, why would you want to be them? We're just going to reinforce that company. Yeah. So, I think I think if you're asking that question, then I think you have existential marketing questions to answer before that question. So, mm-hmm. like, this is a very tactical question. I think once you actually have your comm strategy and brand strategy defined, what your social strategy should be, it's already set. Like it's not a distinct strategy from everything else you're doing from a comms perspective. It's just a channel. So I think that taking a step back and deciding, you know, who you want to be in the world, how you want to be known, how you're going to be more playful, be more utilitarian, be more customer centric and friendly and accessible, higher quality, you know, all all of the standard, you know, ways that we want customers to think about us. Um, that should be decided probably even at this point at the, at the almost at the product level too, especially with software. You know, what, what is like the essence of your brand? What is that identity? And so Google's a great example. You know, there, if I were to ask you like what attributes Google has, you could probably name, you could, you could probably name, you know, three, four, five different adjectives to describe Google, whether it's simple or easy or useful, right? Uh, but that's great because ultimately, and those are all Google's attributes, right? The, but whatever is in your head is is definitely like in some bucket as when like our engineer, the engineers at Google are thinking of creating a piece of software. And so there's that great alignment there. And so once you know that, like what your comms looks like, it should be consistent with that. So, um, and I think Google's actually pretty good at social, like they do fun things, for example, 
not anymore so much. But one example that I used to do is April Fool's Day on the web used to be a big thing. And they would do like cool, creative things like Google Maps would be turned into like a video game, right? It's so nerdy. It's so fun, right? Like that's like a thing that they did. And that's marketing, right? Like that's the engineering team doing it. But when I was at Google, the marketing team actually comes up with the you know, the, the creative fun thing, sometimes the engine PM, PM teams do, but yeah. And then whatever, you know, whatever your brand attributes are, that should be breathed and lived everywhere, not just online, but offline. Like Chipotle is a good example A friends. Someone was tweeting something about Chipotle CEO says they don't know when inflation is going to end. And I'm like, Oh no, I love Chipotle. Stop raising the price of my burritos. <laughs> no, but like, the experience that you get when you go into a Chipotle and you have them make your burrito and like that frontline workers experience, like that, that's, it's always a fun experience. They're always like so positive. They're fun. Like I like all the people that work in like every Chipotle. They're just like, I think they even get like health insurance now. Like they, I don't know if that's actually true. We'll have to fact check that, but their team members always seem really happy. It's always a great experience. And then that experience online, like they're fun on social there are emails that they send to people like they have like they, they give like cool marketing emails if you sign up for their for their app or their um, loyalty program. Like all of that should be as much as it can be like this, this, the same voice and reinforcing that Chipotle makes a good burrito. You know, they're a sustainable brand, which is one of their, you know, one of their pillars, all of these things. And so I think the more you can integrate that across channels and not have to have it be like, what does the social media team do? Well, like, how do your frontline workers talk to people? What do your emails look like? What does your website look like? The more that that can be this integrated thing in such a way that's also fluid, right? So a good example there is Home Depot. So if you go to Home Depot, they encourage their frontline people to like post TikToks, you know, do fun things in the store. And so it's super fun. And they have all these, like, like I've gotten like random tips of how to do things better from them, from a lot of their UGC. And they empower their employees to do that versus there's definitely other consumer brands where like they would be pissed if like a team member like uploaded something. So like, how do you empower your team members to, to, to do it in a way that is within the brand, but also they like those team members feel it's this great individualistic thing. So Home Depot does it. Can you imagine Amazon encouraging someone in their warehouse to post videos of them shipping packages never fucking happens. Right. It's like, it's so interesting because, you know, we're talking about brands, like some brands can do those things. Other brands, it's like definitely not their brand. They don't want, like, they don't want people posting in, in the warehouse shipping things. So it's different marketing. And Amazon is also very, um, you know, they're, they're interesting online of how they actually respond. Like they actually like have trolled journalists, which I wouldn't fucking recommend or do, but they are, I mean, in a way you have to respect the fact that they are the board and they embrace that throughout the whole company. But I like the Home Depot example, the Chipotle example, they're a little bit more warm and fuzzy. And I think that if you were to ask people on the street, like their thoughts about a Home Depot or Chipotle versus versus an Amazon, you would get a whole different response back. And so I think in the future, more so in the future than today, people will want to be at, they'll want to work at, they'll want to give their money towards the brands that they feel good about. And one day, probably less so the Amazons, depending, you know, do they do they own Amazon stock? Do they really want to get something that quickly and at the cost of helping out like a local hardware store, which 
that would be more Lindy. That would be more, you know, you know, Lindy is it's like a thing that we've always done things in the past and it continues to, to propagate and is probably done that way for a reason. I think as young people get older that are more aware about, I, I think young people are actually smarter. I think they get how the pieces of the economy work together a lot better. I, I think you'll want your brand to be like the, like the warm, fuzzy, positive brand and not the, the evil, the evil Amazon. Yeah. I think you made like two great points. I think one, like the like Chipotle example on the Home Depot, like I think it like, it's sometimes it's like starting from that lack of leadership we talked about at the beginning. Like there's no like cohesive strategy of like how this should trickle down to like social comms brand, like experience and like opening packages or experience in going to a store. Like there's no cohesive tr- strategy there. Like, and I've seen that with a lot of like leaders that I've talked, like I've talked to. They're in, they're in over their head. They're in over their head. A lot yeah. of these CMOs are, are in over their head. They're yeah, just like, that role was such a box checker role in the past, and now it matters so much more. And then another point that I, I loved about the, the what you were saying about like brands, like kind of like separating from like these big institutions, like you kind of see a little bit in the movement of like, like people buying like consumer products from like these influencers that they've like followed for years. And like, like for example, my fiance, like, like any product like from her favorite influencer on TikTok she'll buy like she like she's not getting her recommendations from like TV ads or something which sometimes she she might like top of mind stuff but like every product like we're moving to Austin for example and every we're like excited to have you. everything in the apartment she's like oh that influencer has this, we should put this in the house. This influencer has that, we should put that in the house. Which is, but it's how the life works now. Like you see something that's cool, like that someone you trust is like promoting and you feel it and it's organic and they're doing it because not because of, sometimes a brand plays them. Sometimes they just like, I want to show, show off my cool apartment. And I think that's like, and some of these these people are just selling like straight D to C and like go, going through like because but and people willing to pay the premium because they trust that person more than they trust the institution. Hundred um, percent. And yeah. I think you're. I, I think that that old guard model is almost eating itself to die faster. One example of that is there's all of these crypto influencers. I'm sorry. There's all these celebrities that are being paid to shill various shit coins and NFTs that are obvious bullshit. And that celebrity has never, like they probably didn't even see that like Instagram post or tweet where they were promoting whatever, but they collected a check because they don't care about social. They don't care about their audience. Really. They see themselves as, Oh, you know, I'm a celebrity. I do X, Y, and Z. And that's, you know, my brand is, is used to, to, to sell things at scale. And I think that, we're seeing how little that uh, relationship actually matters. And then you're seeing how much more the relationship matters with the person who has a tight relationship with, with you, whether that's, you know, you've connected with them and, you know, you've traded DMs or chat messages, or you've watched their, you know, hundred TikTok videos and they're super personal and they're, or they're like really focused on one niche and they're so passionate about it. It's like, that person cares more about this one thing than anyone else. It's like, I'm super obsessed with headphones. I'm an audiophile nerd. And so 
I've probably sold more pairs of Sennheiser headphones online on Facebook and Twitter and various uh, Reddit and various audio forums than any of their actual paid campaigns. Like I've, I've sold so many now and I don't even have campaign tags for them. I just, you know, recommend it. And their, their social person saw, cause they're smart enough to monitor for this, that I always recommend Sennheiser's and they liked me. So they liked me so much. They sent me like two pairs of $800 headphones as things. Like I'm not paid by them and they didn't even have to send me anything. I'm like, I, I legitimately believe in their product and I think they're the best quality, but it's, it's just pretty cool that, I think listening to your peers or listening to someone who's super passionate about something like that recommendation not only should matter more, but is likely better than the celeb who has given 10 million to, you know, tell you to buy a certain fruit bar. Oh, and the other cool thing is that in a world where it everything is being, you know, further aggregated and bundled and sold by Amazon and independents, you know, have a harder and harder time. I think we want to support the individual even more. And so if, you know, your you said I think your wife buys everything from a certain influencer, like hopefully that extends to like, you know, small business owners that the thing that they can do online that the Home Depot can't is they can be more personal. They can have those direct connections. They can create content in almost like a David versus Goliath type way where what they do is different than what a big company can ever do. And so I think when you approach your marketing from that perspective, you'll start to find all these vectors, either humor or or empathy or whatever you're going to do from a marketing and content perspective um, that are just different than what a competitor can do and will help you stand out. Yeah, I, I totally believe it. And I think like, yeah, yeah, my fiance does doesn't buy directly from the influencer, but like the influencer is like saying like, oh, I bought these tables at like this certain store and I really love them and you should check them out. Like kind of what you did with your headphones. And it's like, and then she'll go buy it. And it's like, like she won't go look at any other table. Like even if I recommended something, she'll be like, no, we're getting that. Like, it's just funny because it's just like so influenced because she trusts that person's aesthetic and feel more than like even going to look at like reviews online of like other people talking about other tables, for example. Yeah. It's, and I think that's, that's a really cool thing. I think that's another reason a lot of marketing leaders are sort of vexed right now because they only understand a, a one-to-many world, a, you know, three channel TV world, a world where, you know, the Super Bowl is coming up, right? And so a lot of brands are going to torch I think $6.5 million on a 30 second ad format. Do you, and do you know the damage that an, a digital ad ops team could do with 6.5 million? Like that's almost enough to, to grow like the first, like that's almost enough to get a startup to maybe to even be a unicorn, right? Like that's like a real budget that you could micro target to a specific sector and to a specific psychographic online, or you could torch it for a 30-second TV spot in the Super Bowl that people are drunk and aren't even going to remember. So if you're Coke or you're Google, sure, torch $6 million on that. Who cares? You're making billions anyway. But there will be, we will see in, in the Super Bowl coming up a lot of startups that have just thrown money at this because someone didn't know what else to do with their budget. And it's an easy way to go through budget and check a box and be like, oh, we did a Super Bowl ad and they can hide behind the fact that that's forever unattributable. And it it probably makes their investors feel good maybe, and maybe their employees feel good. But at the end of the day, 
if it's not bringing in new customers and, or if it's just an inefficient use of spend, like you're, you're being a poor steward of, of that company's investment in dollars. So I, I think, but what you said is, uh, I, I love it. It's, you know, your, your wife loves this person's aesthetic so much. That person built trust with, you know, with her through content and through sharing, you know, a certain designer and that person will do well because of it. And it's, it's, it's like so different than seeing like a rooms to go commercial, right? Where I'm going to go into rooms to go and they have no idea who I am. And even when I go into the store, that person is just trying to make a sale to, to get their bonus or their, you know, whatever, push whatever product they have too much of. It's like, it's so different, right? And, and the outcomes are different. And this isn't just furniture and design work. This is software. This is healthcare. This is everything else. Once it gets to be personalized, it's better for us. We live a better life. It can be better for our community. It, it might have more of a you know nonprofit based tie-in. It might you know social good elements. Whatever thing we care about, like we we want to see more of that in the world. And so you know the more personalized everything gets, that's another reason I don't love a lot of the a lot of the anti data narrative and the whole you know oh you know we want, we, we don't want any data sharing. No, if you had an internet with no data sharing, that experience would be terrible. Um, imagine a TikTok with no algorithm, right? Like the things they recommend you, like you, you want data to improve what you get from a content perspective, from a, you know, customization perspective. You know, you want, when you log into a map app, like for them to know where you are. And then you could, if you're in a city, especially if you don't know where the fuck you are and you're visiting somewhere, right? So like, that's another, we don't have to go into that of the whole like data privacy bullshit. And, and the other thing is, is big companies are good stewards of your data. If, if they weren't like, like Google and Facebook all arguably might not be so good. Google and a lot of the, um, and, and Twitter and I don't know what TikTok is doing with their data, but for, for the most part, it, it's still exponentially better than like the credit card companies where they are actually like, like, like they do some of the various things and some of the, um, some of the experience of the world that like, yeah, they, they do, they do a lot of bad things. Like tech companies don't really do that bad things. Like yeah, really like, not. I, it's like, you know, that they're telling them to send you that credit card in the freaking mail because they know everything about your purchase history and blah, blah, blah. And they selling your purchase history to everybody. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's the, it's the worst thing ever. It's like, and you can opt out of, of emails from a brand you don't like that that abuses your inbox a couple of clicks. So we built our first home and no one knows this address. No one knows this address. But when I first moved in here, I, I actually think my home builder sold sold our address. But I get snail mail spam that I can't stop. Like I, I'm sure you could figure out a way to stop it. You could, you know, make however many phone calls to get off whatever list. Maybe I should look into that. It sucks. And with email, you could just unsubscribe to everything. So people upset, people like upset about like online advertising. I'm like, you could, you could just block that advertiser forever. You never have to see their, you, know, you block the account on social. You never have to see an ad from them again. So they've lost that permission. So the user is in control on online a lot more than offline with getting, you know, spammed to death with physical mail that we can't, we can't put a stop to. So I actually think from like a user perspective, like I get why people are annoyed and I hate spam too, but I think actually the internet gives you a lot more power than you think. Yeah. I mean, I'm a opt into everything because I'm trying to 
my I like I care about my experience more than getting like a random ad that annoys me in my feed or like something that is not served for me that I would maybe be interested in. Like, right. Like I don't want to be like getting like let's say like something that I have never tried in my life or like an interest that I'm not served in my feed or like TikTok start serving me stuff that I see on my like my younger cousin's feed for example like i want what's personalized to me like i don't need that experience that's why i love tiktok because it's so personalized to like what i like i like also the follow model where you can pick and choose like people you want to sometimes that becomes like an echo chamber but it does like at least you can like block people you you start not liking yeah i also that's cool and i also really like I, I like YouTube's uh, subscription model because it's very much like RSS was where, you know, you can have all of the vlogs you read and they show like the little number. Oh, I have like three unreads or unwatched from this channel. I like uh, YouTube a lot. I wish that like Netflix and HBO and other providers would would organize their their content in a similar in a similar way. They're doing it completely different, though, and it's not, you know, an infinite tale and they're trying to you know, feed everyone the same zeitgeist of stuff. So they'll hopefully talk about it and it drives more subs. So I get why they don't do that. But like the YouTube and the, and the TikTok, the, the, the idea of following like a channel or a category or a person, I, I think is a, is a good model. Cause it's like, now, we're talking about data at this point. Now you're, you're, you're telling, you're telling the system what's interesting for you. And whereas I think Netflix makes a lot of assumptions on what they recommend. I actually am not necessarily sold that Netflix's algorithm is, is so great. I mean, they don't have the same library as YouTube. So they, they really just have to get close enough. And you're like, oh, okay, well, you know, it's recommending more action movies to me. I'll, I'll try one of these. But like YouTube is crazy good at knowing, for instance, what, what am I into lately? Oh, I'm really into like uh, aviation videos. I'm really into aviation history. I'm into um, a lot of the warplanes. I'm into a lot of like like how we got to how Airbus and Boeing got to their current designs. And so, I, like I've gone down that rabbit hole. And like YouTube does a really good job, like finding these really niche things about like you know aviation history and engineering and all these cool cool things. And, and now I subscribe to a bunch of those channels and they have that, that signal that I like that, that specific content. I, I think they're doing it and TikTok as well. They, they just have so much more signal than like Netflix and HBO has. It'll be interesting to see how that nets out because video is sort of, um, I, I think video is also the, the last chance, not the last chance, but it, it's still your chance as a brand to be a pioneer. There's so few brands that have great YouTube channels that have great TikTok presences. I mean, I think that one's not as mature quite yet. It's like it's not necessarily clear what you what you would do from a brand standpoint there, unless you have people. If you have people that are willing to be forward, and some companies do, and some companies don't. I think YouTube is an obvious channel that companies still don't do a great job with. If we want to get tactical and help people, like there's probably no company that couldn't have an awesome you know, YouTube presence where you're scaling intimacy. You know, you're my this isn't YouTube, but my wife subscribes to a podcast called Skinny Confidential. I think they do video as well. And they she, she buys a lot of their branded products. And so the only reason she does is she's heard hours and hours of their, their content. And so whether it's a podcast or, or, or video or whatever you want to do, having that sustained conversation 
over time, like it definitely positions your brand as the one I want to buy from. Like if I had two choices of B2B marketing software that I wanted to buy, am I, am I going to buy from the one where I don't even know who works there? And it's like, would I even be able to get a human if I needed, you know, support as an SMB, not as an enterprise customer, you'd always get support, but, or the one where it's like, they have, you know, 500 videos from various team members there. Oh, I, I definitely can stock one of those people in those videos and pester them on LinkedIn and send them a message and they'll, you know, they'll help me. I think that however you can do that as a company scaling intimacy, I, I think, I, I think YouTube is probably the easiest way. And the one that so few people are doing again, the companies with social media team members where that social media manager is paid a quarter million a year, they're not just tweeting. They're, they're, they're creating presentations and publishing them. They're doing webinars. They're, they're doing like a, a lot more content creation than, than just replying to Elon Musk tweets with whatever meme happened today. Right. That's one thing. That's just one part of it. Yeah. Well, this has been great. I have to jump because break the job life, but Thank you so much for joining. This has been awesome. Yeah, it's I'm always happy to talk with you, Daniel. Um, I have listened to many of your previous podcasts. I think we got connected through through Amanda, who I mentioned a few yeah. times. So um, she she loves you. She speaks really highly of you as well. So um, yeah, this was fun. Thank you. Um, All right, bye. Awesome. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.